0: Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. It is so good uh, just to be with you guys this morning. Um, I'm sure most of you don't, don't know me, so my name is Laquan Green. Um, I have the joy of uh, living in Gloucester County, Virginia, so right across the bridge. And um, I help co-lead a Calvary Chapel here in Gloucester. And so it is so, so good uh, just to gather with y'all. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And this is a pretty familiar song uh, for most of us, but I think there's some really beautiful stuff here that I want to, by God's grace, uh, just look at together. So Psalm 51. Psalm 51, and it says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. And let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide my face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips in my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. Amen. Amen. So our sermon topic for today is this, grace for guilty people. Grace. For guilty people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, so much for your word. Thank you so much just for your spirit who is so beautifully among us, God. Thank you that in the gospel, the church is family. No matter where we go, no matter where we gather, we are all one people. That we are all these living stones that are built together into a temple for you. And so, God, I pray that as a family, you would use this psalm to conform us into the image of the Son. Would you make us more like yourself, Lord, as we just unpack this grace for guilty people? Lord, I thank you that you've made us clean. Though we once were guilty, we've now been freed. And so, God, I pray that this psalm would just stir in us a passion for our cities, that we would be people who exalt Christ, who love your people and declare this gospel to all nations that you are a God who declares the guilty innocent because of the son. Would you sanctify your people by your word in Christ's name? Amen. Amen. And so in our lives, right, there are two words uh, that we say quite a bit that can both awaken a sense of broken heart, and maybe even pride. And those two words are, I'm sorry, right? I don't know about you, but I had to say that word a lot this week, right? We all say it, right? I'm sorry, right? We have to go back in this sense of head down, our, our pride is shrunken, our ego deflated, and we almost kind of whisper the words when we have to say it, don't we? I'm sorry, right? That word kind of gets at us, doesn't it? right? It shows that we often make mistakes. We often fail. We often have regrets. And so we often have to say, I'm sorry. In fact, a 2011 study um, in the Journal of Social Psychology showed this interesting fact that 90% of adults struggle with regret. 90% of adults struggle with regret. And they say that the way out of this regret and this guilt is to simply not think about it, right? Fill your mind with happier thoughts of yourself and you'll be free of your guilt, right? Let go of your guilt, forget about it, put it out of sight, out of mind, and you will be free. Yet in the Christian life, when we deal with regret and guilt, we journey through our sin and we get renewed joy, not by putting it out of sight and out of mind, like they would try to tell us. But as we see who we are in light of who Christ is in our sin, in our guilt, and find freedom, that is the pathway for a new joy, all right? And so in our text, we see the life of David, right? At this point in our psalm, David has been confronted by Nathan, the prophet, over his affair with Bathsheba, all right? We all know the story. And so here he is facing down this consequence of his sin, the loss of his son. And now he's writing out of a sense of brokenness and anguish over his sin. This is so much deeper than I'm sorry. This is about repentance, right? And if we look at our own hearts, we know that we ourselves, we, we struggle with sin. We wrestle with our brokenness. We, we wrestle with the fact that we live in a fallen world and we still have fallen hearts. And so even we, too, need something more than the word that we say a lot. I'm sorry. We need a transformation of the soul. We need a sense of redemption from our guilt. We need a sense of cleansing and washing, and that's what only Christ can do. All right? And so if you're here today and you struggle with regret, you struggle with your sins, even some sins that you may committed, even coming in here this morning, I want to tell you, there is a grace and a kindness that is available for you. All right? There is a grace of God for guilty people, and this grace is meant to lead us into something. This grace is not about simply reveling in our uh, wonder and delight of forgiveness. No, it's meant to push us into a sense of mission. Grace for guilty people is about the forgiveness of God, which leads us into the mission of God. And so whoever you are and wherever you are, there is a grace for you, right? If you are the worst of the worst, the dirtiest of the dirty, there is a grace that will cover your sin. And so David shows us step-by-step in this Psalm what the grace of Christ for guilty people looks like and how we as a body are meant to be people who give this grace as well. Amen? So here's the main idea for our time together If you're taking notes, feel free to write this down. The gospel of grace for the guilty must produce people of grace toward the guilty. That's the main idea. The gospel of grace for the guilty must produce people of grace toward the guilty. And so, this gospel that frees us from our guilt should then, in turn, in our church, produce a culture of people of grace, right? And so here's our outline. We see four things that we should see and savor in the grace of God. First, it's our need of grace, our need of grace. Secondly, it's Christ's work of grace. And thirdly, our mission of grace. And then last, Christ's promise of grace. We're going to go through those again. And so let's start at point one. Our need of grace. Look at Psalm 51, verses 1. And it says this, Have mercy on me, O God. And so David's first cry is one of mercy, right? Another way to translate this would be, Be gracious to me. Right? David, in the midst of his sin, is pleading on the mercy of God. So the first thing we need to see is that we need mercy grace. We need the grace of God. David sees the seriousness of his sin enough to come into the presence of God, and he throws himself on his mercy. That's what he does. And so in other words, he realizes that the kindness of God toward his sin is not deserved. Notice the word. He says mercy, right? This is undeserved, unmerited kindness that he can in no ways earn. He needs the mercy of God, and so do we, right? We see that from the start that, yes, we need grace, but we do not deserve grace. He sees and he pleads, God, would you have mercy on me? Would you be gracious to me? Would you be kind to me? I see my sin for what it is, and I know that I am in desperate, desperate need of the mercy of God. And this is our story, isn't it, church? That we have been given a kindness that we in no ways deserve. All of us are leveled here at the cross, aren't we? We are people who've been given a grace that we did not earn or did not merit, but it is on the pure mercy and grace of Christ. We've been reconciled of pure love. We are people born of the mercy of God. And so we must remember this grace, this mercy that David asks for. And so as a body, we plead and say, God, have mercy on us. That's, that's our need, right? Yet again, though, David sees something else, that this mercy is according to. Look at verse 2. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy. So this mercy that comes from God is according to something, right? It's a fountain that has a reservoir according to what? Steadfast love. In other words, it's the covenant love of God, right? It's this Exodus 34, 6 through 7 kind of covenant, right? Exodus 34 says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for what? Thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the sons of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's what David's speaking of, right? And so when he asks for mercy, he's drawing on the nature of God, right? He says, God, I know that in your own self, you are the fountain of mercy. And so I plead on that because it's who you are. And so when we come to God, in our sin, in our failures, we can come to him knowing that it's in his nature. It's according to his covenant love. If you're in Christ today, he made a covenant to love you. Christ made a covenant to be faithful to you, even though we break that covenant time and time again. Because it's according to his own covenant, right? That should be a means of your joy, that God makes a covenant with you. Amen that it is God himself in his own being, God, that he gives mercy to us sinners. It's in his nature. He doesn't just give mercy, he doesn't just give grace, he is mercy, he is grace, he embodies this. Jesus said himself, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest. And so if you're here this morning And you are tired, burdened by your sin, there is a king who wants to give rest to you according to his own love. And so when we deeply see our need for the mercy of God, when our souls have been left famished after eating the bread of this world that will never satisfy, then we will truly see the covenant love of God right? I mean, I'm I'm not sure about you, but gosh, in this world, we can fill our lives with so much stuff that just doesn't fill your soul. And so on Sunday mornings, on the Lord's day, we come in and we say, gosh, would you fill me with your mercy? I am hungry. My soul is famished and tired. And Christ says, yes, I will. According to his love, According to his mercy. Amen. And so, how does this look for us as a people? Right? How do we apply this to our lives as a local church? I want to encourage you in this. It should uh, be applied to our lives in that we become a community of gospel neediness. We should become a community of gospel neediness. That we are a people who say, God, have mercy on us corporately. Right? We create environments in this local body that together we can come and partake of the mercy of God, right? We don't create the culture that hides our need of mercy, right? We don't come in with the veneer of all togetherness, right? We come in and we say, no, we are a people in corporate need of the grace of God, right? This body should be a safe place where sinners like you and me can come in and throw ourselves on the mercy of God with no pretenses, with no masquerade, with no veneer, with no mask trying to keep it all together, but we find the mercy of God according to his love. Tim Keller says this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Right? And so this is the reality of Psalm 51, right? We are sinful and flawed. Yes, we are. We do not deny that. There's safety in confessing that to one another. But at the very same time, we realize that we are loved and accepted by a holy and righteous God. Why? because it's according to his steadfast love. It's according to his grace. Let's look at verses three through five. David says this, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so not only do we recognize our need of grace, but we know our sin, right? We, we own up to who we are, right? This is who we are. We own up to it. In other words, we don't hide, right? David says he knows his transgressions. The, the Hebrew word is, is yada. He, he intimately knows his own self. He knows his sinfulness, his brokenness, his flawed humanity. He doesn't pass it by, He doesn't sweep it under the rug, right? He is not in the business of self-deceit, and neither should we. We come into God's presence fully uncovered with our scars and wounds and sinfulness, right? We we don't bring in leaves to cover ourselves like our foreparents did. They tried to cover their sin. They tried to hide from the presence of God. But Psalm 51 says, no, you can know your sin You can uncover your brokenness because God is there. He cares. He doesn't banish you. He cares. David knows that he's guilty, yet he's pleading on the basis of the gracious God. Right? And so this flies in the face of how culture thinks about this, doesn't it? We like to convince ourselves that we're good. Right, Culture says you are the most amazing person in the world, and you should tell yourself that over and over and over again until you believe it. But that is not the gospel. The gospel says you're fully known for all of your brokenness and all of your sin, yet you are fully loved, and you are good because you're in the Son. And so all of his goodness becomes yours. That's the heart of the gospel. Right, And so it is in the realization of who we are that we see who Christ is. Right? He is the perfection of holiness, and we ourselves, apart from him, are broken from the fall. But the gospel is so glorious in that Christ mediates for us. He bridges this chasm between us and God. He breaks down the wall, and now we can come close. But it starts when we know our sin. When we know our sin. Verse 4 says this, against you and only you have I sinned. He says he knows this, that every sin that he's committed is to God. That's funny, isn't it, right? His sins are toward Bathsheba, right? The nation of Israel, right? Nathan's grieving over his sins. So how is it, David, that your sin is only to God when all these people are affected? It's because of this. Because God is holy. Every sin that we commit is ultimately to him. Why? Because everything and everyone belongs to him. The earth is his. And so when we defile or defame anything in this world, it is to defile and defame the holiness of God himself. That's why every sin is ultimately against him. Because he is the God of all. Right? Every sin at its core is to prefer something other than God. And David knows this. And so do we as a family, right? Do we see God's holiness and do we also see his covenant love? So as to know our sin and bring it before him without fear, do we know the depth of his love and the depth of our own humanity. Do we own up to our frailty that we are dust and that he is holy enough to come into his presence and say, God, have mercy on me. And so from the deepest seed of the soul, there must be truth, right? From our very being, we have to be honest about ourselves. We own up. We come clean. We spill the beans, we open up the box that we try to keep locked away. We take down the facade. Why? Because of this truth right here. Look at verse six. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Notice that word, delights. He delights in that. When we are truthful from the deepest seat of the soul, it meets Christ's delight. That should give you joy. He delights in truth, in the inward being. Notice he doesn't say demeans. He does not say despises. He does not say that he detaches from you. No shame, no judgment, not condemning you for what you've done, but delights. All right? He delights when we're honest about ourselves. All right? When we own up to our humanity, our frailty, our wrongdoings, he meets us with delight. Isn't that glorious? He delights in the truth, in the inward being, the grace of sinless Christ. When sinful people open up just how sinful they really are, he meets them with a smile. He meets them with delight. Right? He sees them with loving eyes. It's only when we hide from him and reject his knowledge of us that we find something else. But he delights. He meets sinners with open arms if they would just confess their sin. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, if you would just confess your sin, you will find him to be a perfect and glorious Savior. He delights in truth. In the inward being. And so if you're here and you're struggling, gosh, I would encourage you. Would you come out of hiding? Right? Would you come out of this sense of I need to hide my sin, hide my shortcomings, hide my failures, hide in the dark. Because Christ is safe. He's holy, but he is safe. You can come out of hiding. He's not going to wound you because he was wounded for you. Right? He died. He died. So that you would not have to hide. David knows his transgressions. And so if your sins are ever before you, you can find the grace of Christ for your sin. Amen? But not only do we find grace, we find something else. We find his work of grace. Which leads to our second point. Christ's work of grace. Let's look at verses 7. He says... Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So notice what he asks for, right? He says, God, I know my sin, but now I'm asking that you would purge me with hyssop. Now, this this cleansing of hyssop was to be done by a priest for purification of some defiled, namely lepers or those who have come into defilement. And so David saw himself as needing someone to cleanse him for his sin according to the law. He is the defiled king asking for the work of the high priest, and he asks for God. He says, would you purge me with hyssop, right? Would you make me clean? Would you wash me? Would you purify me? Would you purge away all of my sin, all of my shortcomings, all of my defilement that I've gotten myself into? But David leans into this with a sense of confidence, too, doesn't he? He says, purge me and I shall be clean. There's no question here, right? If he is purged, he will be clean, right? And so if you're here today, Christ is willing to cleanse you. And that cleansing is perfect. There's no uncertainty in the atonement of Christ There is no uncertainty in the work of Christ. When he purges you, you shall be clean. He changes and saves those even to the uttermost. Why? Because his work of grace is perfect and full. He will not lose those whom he purges. David comes into this with confidence. He says, if you purge me, I shall be clean. If you wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. There's a certainty and a confidence. And so if you bring your sinfulness to Christ, there's a promise, a sure promise that you will be clean. Because the cleansing of Christ is a final act of grace. That's what he does for you. But even more so, this priestly work, it points to Jesus. Right, so, so where is the gospel in verse seven? It's this, that Christ is the greater high priest. Christ is the one who purges with hyssop. It is the hyssop of his very life, right? He gives us himself as our purification, He is the hyssop that purifies. He is the priest that mediates and then declares us clean. He is the lamb who atones for our sin. This is Christ for you and for me. Christ gives us the hyssop of his life. We are purified by Christ himself. He is the lamb, the priest, and the purifier in one. And so in our lives together, when we find ourselves trotting through the dirt of sin, we can find grace, all right? And so as a family in this local body, how do we handle the sins of other people, all right? When we come into this body and we find ourselves broken and failing with one another, do we ourselves offer Christ to one another, all Right. We should be a community bringing hyssop of Christ and his work to each other in our relationships, right? This is not some hypothetical forgiveness and grace. No, it is a grace that comes down in our human relationships. As we say, gosh, brother, I see your sin and I forgive you. Sister, I see your shortcomings and I forgive you. We bring the hyssop of Christ to one another. That's how we bring Psalm 51 down into the life of the church. We don't hide from each other, but we come bearing the work of Christ for one another. That is the culture we're meant to create. But even more, Christ renews our joy. Look at verse 8. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. And so this purging work of Christ Is meant to lead us into joy. He says, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 9 Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Right? He asked God, Would you hide your face from my sin? Would you blot out my iniquities? Then he asked for something profound. Verse 10 Create in me a clean heart oh God, and renew in me a right spirit. And so not only does he ask for purging and purification, but he asks for a new heart, right? He says, create in me, notice the language, in me a clean heart. In other words, David could not produce this heart by himself. He could not create in himself a clean heart. He didn't simply ask for new behavior. He said, no, create in me a clean heart. He doesn't ask for another chance. He asks for another heart. Right, He's saying, God, would you restore my heart? Would you give me a clean heart? Would you regenerate me in this sense of I need a new heart? I need a new life. I need a new humanity. I need to be born of above. I need you to do a work in my heart that I cannot do for myself. Create in me a clean heart. He knows that from his own self, idols, right. They they flow out. He knows that from his sin, that's that's where the heart is, right? From our heart, sin, evil, defilement come from. And so he asks God himself to make me new. To make me new. I need a new heart. I need a new person. I need your spirit to take out the heart of stone and to put in the heart of flesh. right? at the core of our being, we need the God who says, let there be light to say, let there be new in our hearts. And that's what he does for you. If you are in Christ, he puts in you a a new heart, a clean heart, a heart that has new affections, new desires, new longings, new love for him that will cling to him as glorious and good. All right. Let's look at verse 11. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. And so this new heart is the way of renewed joy. But not only is it meant for renewed joy, it's meant to lead us into something and that's a mission, right? Let's look at our third point. Christ's mission or our mission of grace. Third point. Let's look at verse 13. It says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So notice the flow of the passage here, right? David's clean. He's purified. Then he says, I will teach other people about you. I will teach transgressors your ways. This grace that we receive is not meant to be uh, just embrace for ourselves. It's meant to lead us into something that we teach transgressors the ways of God, right? And the end goal is that people would return to Christ. And so if you receive grace today, it's not simply about just embracing and saying, Oh, I've been cleaned. I've been washed. Let me stay in this space. No, he is pointing us into the mission of grace. That sinners will return to you. The mission of God is connected to a deep savoring of the grace of God. All right? You will tell a lot about a church's grasp of the grace of God by how they enter into the mission of God. All right? You'll tell a lot about a church's grasp and, and just embrace of the grace of God by how they enter into the mission of God. Right? because if we are not on mission on the goal that sinners will return to you then could it be that we have not fully embraced the grace of God for us in such a way that we want others to receive it and experience it too right grace is meant to lead you into mission right we are not meant to be a bride that simply uh, rejoices in our newly white dress no we enter into the trenches into the dirty, into the broken, for the sake of the cause of Christ. When we experience grace, we will then tell others about the grace of God. That's who we're meant to be. Verse 14, let's look at it together. David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. So he's asking, would you deliver me from this guiltiness of blood? right? Then he goes on to say, and my tongue will sing aloud of your praise. And so this grace of God is meant to produce in us a worship, right? David says that he will sing aloud of your righteousness, right? Does that mark your life? One of worship, because grace, if we fully experience it, should produce a praise in our soul that cannot be contained. He says, I will sing aloud, right? This grace is not quiet. It's not passive. But there's this exuberant, Christ-exalting, white-hot worship and joy, right? There's a flame of fire of this grace of God that so produces praise and thanksgiving that everybody hears it. Everybody sees it, right? Does that mark your life this morning? In your workplace, on your job, do you sing aloud of the grace of God? Is the grace of God evident in your life? It should be, right? This grace is not quiet. It's not passive, but it, it's meant to produce in us a thankfulness, right? Let's keep going. Verse 15, he says, O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you do not delight in sacrifice or I will give it and you will not be pleased with a burnt offering right so even more than sacrifices he wants your heart right the whole goal of this mission of God is to tell the world look he does not just want your sacrifices he wants your heart Right? It's not enough to just kind of give all this stuff without your heart. He doesn't want that. He wants your heart. Amen? Let's look at our last point. Our last point is this. Christ's promise of grace. His promise of grace. So not only do we see our need of grace, not only do we see this renewing of grace and our mission of grace, But there's also a promise attached to this, right? Let's look at verses 17, the last verse. It says, the sacrifices of God are of a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And so what does David offer us at the end of this Psalm? He says, there's a promise here. If you would come to Christ with a broken heart, that is the sacrifice that he wants, right? Not your offerings, not your penance, your heart, right? He longs to have the heart that is broken. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, is your heart broken over your sin, right? Is your heart broken and contrived because he makes a promise? that he will not despise you, right? He will not despise you. So in our lives together, we can come to Christ. And in our lives together, we can come to one another with this sense of grace. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.